This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Shiva Ray. Shiva teaches vinyasa flow yoga worldwide. She's a yogini firekeeper, sacred activist, global adventurer, and leading innovator in the evolution of prana flow yoga, transformational vinyasa flow, integrating the tantric bhakti roots of yoga, Krishnamacharya's teachings, and a universal quantum approach to the body. She has studied many forms of yoga and dance in India, Africa, Nepal, Jamaica, and Bali. With Sounds True, Shiva has created many DVDs and audio programs and has released a new book called Tending the Heart Fire, Living in Flow with the Pulse of Life, where she helps the reader reconnect with the heart fire at the center of their being, which synchronizes with the pulse of the earth itself. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Shiva and I spoke about the power of gazing at a natural fire and what it means to be a fire keeper when the fire that you're keeping is the flame of your very own heart. We also talked about the importance of tuning to the natural cycles of the sun and the phases of the moon and how to do this even in the midst of a busy contemporary life. And finally, Shiva offered us simple practices we can do on the spot to tend to the fire of the heart. Here's my conversation with Shiva Ray. Shiva, you begin your new book, Tending the Heart Fire, Living in Flow with the Pulse of Life, with a few key metaphors for our human heart. And I, and I want to start there in talking about a couple of these key metaphors. And one is you compare our human heart to a fire. And I wonder if you can explain that. How is our heart like a fire? Well, one, it's great to be speaking with you, Tammy. Um, and of course, I love all the wisdom that flows through sounds true. And uh, it's not really me that's called the heart of fire. And that's really the purpose of, you know, giving a visual orientation of this understanding of the metaphor of a heart fire is that as I started to connect my own personal experience of what I would call the energetic heart um, as the kind of one way of describing the heart fire, I, I found that pretty much all of the world's spiritual traditions had some orientation to this vision of the heart as a fire or the, the light of the heart, uh, uh, one that is so vivid for me because my, my grandmother was a mystic Catholic and she had this picture of Jesus with the, this flaming heart over her bed 
um, you know, so she could lie down and do her rosaries with this flaming heart of Jesus picture. It's really uh, a metaphor that is an actual kind of living sensation of our energetic heart. So for me, it was just very profound to discover that it's more than a metaphor. It's a way of giving words to this mysterious uh, sensation of heat uh, that we feel, not just in, of course, our heart, but the entire energetic system of the body as it comes alive. Well, tell me more what you mean by that in terms of this experience of heat and the energetic Mm. system of the body. Yeah, um, I describe it in the beginning of the book uh, when I describe having a very, very high fever of malaria, you know, deep, deep, deep in the bush near Mount Kenya when I was a volunteer. And now I had a high fever, so that's one kind of heat. (laughs) But this is this literal sensation that I feel most of us have had at some time in our life and that we kind of, because this is my, you know, contemplation is about embodiment and disembodiment, and we can kind of numb ourselves to this sensation. But this is what, you know, I discovered through yoga practices and, and many of the, the practices that are shared through the world's traditions, chanting, prayer, is you start to feel this kind of almost like a shimmer um, a, a radiant energy in the heart region. And so, of course, the chakra system is, you know, very well known uh, within yoga. So this is the sensation of our heart chakra, but, of course, you know, we are energetic beings, so it's more than our heart itself, but the electromagnetic field of the heart is what we're discovering through the recent science is perhaps what we are sensing when we feel this sensation in our heart region. Now, in the book, you offer this, I guess you'd say fact, I hadn't heard it before, but that the electromagnetic field of the heart is 5,000 times stronger than any other organ in the body. Now, this is a very strong statement. I know. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty much pervades the literature. You know, I have a a master's from UCLA, so everything is really, really well documented and, and researched. And the the main clearinghouse for this kind of science of the electromagnetic field of the heart is the HeartMath Institute. And I also thought it's an astounding, you know, number. Like maybe you would think twice as much or three times as much. But when you understand something, you know, I'm a liberal arts major, so I appreciate science, but I, I need it to be kind of described as I do in the book, you know, through visuals, um, through like, well, why would the heart have that much more energy than any other organ? And it relates to the very special nature of um, cardiac cells and that the heartbeat, which is created from the pacemaker cells, creates an electrical charge. Um, and because the the nature of the pacemaker cells is to you know, beat in unison. It's one of the beautiful ways the physiology of our of our being kind of gives us some clue to this nature of our energetic heart. Um, it's it's because of this special tissue. And this, for me, I became fascinated both in terms of my contemplations and then in as my my life work in terms of leading people in collective movement and meditation and sometimes very large scale thousands of people. 
is you can actually see, you can feel <laughs> that we are also like these pacemaker cells. We we ex- accelerate the tra- this charge of our electromagnetic field by our bonding together. So the electromagnetic field of the heart, it's not just that it extends beyond our body, but it's an actual communication with other heart fields. In other words, people's heartbeats literally start to synchronize together because of the electromagnetic field of the heart. So, I mean, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to know, because of this 5,000 times stronger than any other mm-hmm. organ in the body, what the implications are, do you think? If we really were to understand this, what does this tell us about how we live our life and about what's happening at any given moment in the feeling field of our heart? Right. Well, one of the things that I try and illustrate um, also by going deeply into the kind of yogic understanding of of the heart and the, the importance of the heart rhythm is, of course, you know, from the yogic understanding, everything is pulsation. So it's no different than the quantum physics understanding. So one of the the greatest kind of feedback, untapped feedback mechanisms that our energetic heart field gives us is that it bathes the entire body and also our pulse is a kind of communication to every cell in our body and on a very primary level between our heart and our brain and, of course, our breath. I call it like the sacred triad. And so this is where the metaphor of firekeeping comes in is when our heart rhythm is in syncopation with our brain waves and our breath flow and this is very much connected energetically. It's not just a, as well as a hormonal uh, phenomenon, you know, through the bloodstream. That this syncopation of our heart rhythm, our brain waves, and our breath brings us into our highest state of flow. That there really isn't a way of describing flow or even the state of meditation without including. The, the power of the electromagnetic field of the heart. Okay, now this is very interesting to me, bringing into, you're using this word syncopation, or mm-hmm. in the book you talk about coherence the, mm-hmm. with the heart, the brain, mm-hmm. and our breathing. In any given mm-hmm. moment, can you tell inside what level of syncopation you're at with your heart, your brain, and your breath? And then what do you do when you find it out of sync. Right. Well, you know, one thing that is helpful is that you can actually see this. This is something that is part of the technology that the HeartMath Institute developed, is that you can actually see this um, heart-brain coherence in these kind of biofeedback uh, mechanisms that basically measure the heart rate, and from that are able to um, basically, when your heart rhythm gets into a certain, we could say, a sine wave, it's a slower rhythm, that the coherence between your heart and your brain, basically, you can't be in an automatic shallow breath, for instance. Um, the tensions that are in your body have to kind of begin to unwind because this is all a, a kind of present moment flow state. And so the tendency is for our brain waves to be kind of disembodied or at a higher state 
of a frequency, like a beta brainwave frequency, and our heart rhythm kind of trying to to syncopate, you could say, one of the ways that this is described is that by simply bringing awareness to your heart region or through feeling or through meditation, this coherence just begins to happen. And for me, it's just a sensation of complete uh, naturalness and heightened flow. And so for me, all day long, I can start to, I can see this modulation going on. And that's, that's the kind of firekeeping part. Okay, so just to get specific, let's say you find mm-hmm. yourself rattled for some reason, to use a technical term. You find yourself yes. super rattled. We would say dissonant, like you're in a dissonant state, which I think like in working with people and really just talking about this in very plain language, everyone gets that rattled, dissonant, discombobulated you, you can feel that your personal rhythms are out of sync. Okay, so what are your go-to moves in those moments mm-hmm. when you find yourself in that state? Right. So this is what I, I really began to appreciate, um, how the science mirrored the meditation techniques in yoga, which is as simple. The first one that I, I pretty much try and be with all of my waking hours, even as I go to sleep, is called just simply the the heart gaze. And we can even enjoy it now for a moment, which is basically relaxing the backs of your eyes. So that's a kind of interesting sensation. But if you go with it and allow the backs of your eyes to relax as if you are looking inward to your heart region. And you can either just feel the entire region, or you can also begin to sense, which is part of the meditations in the book, the sensation of your heart region. And simply by letting go of everything else, but just this kind of establishment of this inner gaze, you begin to feel a shift of consciousness that is, of course, described in many worlds traditions. You could say we enter into mindfulness, or from uh, you know the more devotional aspects, you know we begin to enter that state that we all know of, like okay, now I'm listening to my heart. And then the simplest next thing is to just sounds so simple is to place your hand on your heart, touch, so the gaze, the feeling, and then the touch. And it's so simple. Every time I bring my hand to my heart, I I feel this kind of rattled or dissonance began to shift. And of course, in the book, there's like 108 different meditations that just take that simple technique. And there's one more, which is called bhava or bhavana in, in yoga. And it is to, to tap into an, an emotion that is healing in nature for you. So that from the science of how this works with the heart math is the simplest is, of course, this is the time of year we're in Thanksgiving, gratitude. You know, um, when I was in Delhi, one of my, um, one of my teachers from, you know, just from the street, you know, had absolutely no na- legs. His name was Raja. And he lived in that state. As if no legs was no problem, he had two arms. He lived in it like that, incredible, powerful state of, of claiming gratitude at 
the, the deepest, darkest suffering that one could have. And so that process then leads you to the fifth thing, which is, is this universal heart fire meditation, which is to actually sense the electromagnetic field of your heart. And this then leads to some movement. So if your hand was at your heart, just radiating your hands away from your heart, whatever state you're in, it it, it begins to shift towards this coherence. It, it, it's so simple, and from that simplicity, an incredible richness also emerges. So, Shiva, when you talk about sensing the electromagnetic mm. field of your heart, could you tell me what that feels like to you? How far do you feel it extending? What's that like for you? Sure. Um, well, I think the amazing thing is that the sensing of the electromagnetic field, you can feel so much in movement practices like yoga or qigong, where as soon as we begin to sense our entire energetic body, and this is what I've been dedicated for the last 20 years, is just how can we move into the quantum age? <laughs> you know, how can these energetic practices that never were ever just purely material, um, the matter of the body, um, how can we offer these tools to this shift of consciousness? So the simplest thing that I begin to, to notice just in my own practice and also in working with many, many uh, people is that when your hands, for instance, if we bring both hands to our heart, and then slowly, rather than extending your arms, but slowly emanate your arms in front of your heart, sensing, receiving, rather than moving on top of the moment-to-moment sensation. And for me, there's this kind of fullness that is um, absolutely bringing this buoyancy to my arms, but my arms do not feel held by uh, muscles. Uh, My bones feel even a kind of uh, hollow-like shimmer, you know, that the the density of the body, for me, immediately changes when I'm sensing the electromagnetic field of my body, which, you know, 30 years ago, people would say aura, your aura. <laughs> but I can never say that <laughs> because it's, it, people get a block. You know? So this electromagnetic field, I, I, for me, it's very much related to the states of flow that I'm in. And I would say the, in the highest states of flow, I, I don't feel an end to that field. Hmm. And particularly in um, meditations, or even movement meditations with many, many people, you you really feel the strength and the power of the collective field. Now, one other question, and I just want to make sure that I'm fully tracking with you because you've given some key techniques here that sound simple, but I I also sense how profound they are. You talked about Mm. the gaze. So when we're Mm. looking in at our heart, are we looking down in an inward yes. kind of way? Can you just be more specific? So I'm sure I'm tracking with you on the gaze. Sure. Well, I mean, I think one of the things from being a, a movement-based teacher is I never like to just tell people exactly this is what you're going to feel. Because what I've noticed is that, like uh, what Mary Oliver describes, you know, that, that we all hear and it, we immediately recognize, like, that the soft animal of the body does not like to be bossed around, you know? 
Um, so I try and always give this quality, both for myself and when offering this, that, you know, it's a kind of exploration. It's, it's for me, a very tangible sense that you're, in yoga practice it's called you're gazing at the shetra, means the general region. It doesn't have to be a specific point, but it is beautiful to know that there is the kind of bindu that we could say is also like the center of the heart organ, which you know is so beautiful and more of the Vajrayana Buddhist uh, orientations of it, like the first cells of the heart contain the, the vibration of the love union of one's mother and father. You know, so it's like just turning one's gaze to this bindu, not like some mechanical point, but it will find you. <laughs> and so I would say it's like gazing to, towards the center of the center. Hmm. And you can add, if particularly you're feeling, uh, I think the most, when I, you know, started to go more deeply into the energetic heart, I had to come to terms with how hardened my heart was. You know, that there, or, and I can feel in an oscillation, there's times when my heart really shuts down, you know. So it's not like every time I gaze into my heart, I feel the sun, which is, you know, part of the book is all of these metaphors in yoga of how the sun and the the moon exist in the fire of the heart, you know, the fire altar of the heart. You know, sometimes we have to rekindle the sensation. And I think those of us who are into kind of science or more intellectual, the science really helps us because basically when our brain waves are separate from our heart rhythm or we're running a dissonant state, it's just dysfunctional. We're just not at our highest flow. Now you mentioned somebody tuning to their heart potentially or you talked about it, how Mm -hmm. sometimes it happens for you and you tune to this part of the body and what if we find either a very shut down experience yeah. or tremendous sadness, a, a sort of heartbreak. Mm. How, how do you suggest people work with that? Yeah. You know, I always find because of, you know, my orientation in, in dance movement therapy and somatic psychology and you know, just contemplating how long we've had this disembodied history. If you live, if you have ancestors, you know, from... Uh, actually anywhere in the world, but particularly anywhere in the West, um, it's it's such a journey to come to terms with either how we've shut down our heart by either over-intellectualizing our experience and that that can be a mode of being that is even a family mode. Um, uh, it can be something that we've existed in, you know, for decades or a decade or several years. And then, of course, these cycles where we have a heavy heart. You know, I recently lost my, my grandfather, and it was just it was so powerful to go through that knowing, um, uh, you know, being submerged in the energetic heart because I could feel this heaviness, but it was like a beautiful heaviness. It didn't, it didn't dampen the fire. I, I, I think for myself, basic, you know, States of stress to extreme stress are the most difficult to work with in terms of the heart fire. Sometimes sadness around the in, in resting in your heart is is the most satisfying place to be. There's almost like no other place you can go 
because nothing seems to move without, uh, you know, this fire of the heart, <laughs> you know. I mean, but there are specific techniques. That's pretty much what the, the entire book is about, is like, you know, every every meditation is conducive to any disconnected state. listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you're talking, Shiva, about the energetic heart, and I wonder if you could just make explicit for us what the connection is between the physical heart and the energetic mm-hmm. heart, how you see that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the the thing that I've been working with is that you know we all grew up with a purely physical understanding of our heart as this extraordinary pump. And that there were no intelligent neural um, pathways or, or information coming from the heart that had um, any separate, you could say, either value or it was always that the brain was the master control through the nervous system and the heart was getting all these signals from the brain of how to function. So from heart transplant patients... Um, and this new science of the heart, we realize that the heart has 60% neural cells, uh, that it sends more signals from the heart to the brain, that it's an incredible orchestrator of, as we've been describing, these coherent states of flow. So for me, the spiritual heart there is really this, the same mechanism. It's the, this, this kind of particular wisdom when we feel that there's not this separate struggle going on between what do we think and what do we feel. It's this very quiet place where the alignment with our heart energy creates this kind of shift that's through, in yoga we'd say, all the layers of our body. you know. And so I don't really see a difference between the physical heart and the spiritual heart except that I... The, the yogic understanding is that that heart energy, hridaya, is described, the heart consciousness bathes every cell in the body. And that's really the understanding of the, the heart field, is there's no cell in the body that isn't connected to the heart. Through the, through the heartbeat, through the, the vibration of the heart, and through the electromagnetic field of the heart. Now, in the beginning, we were talking about this metaphor of the heart as a fire. And one of the mm. central metaphors throughout the book is this idea, and you've said it a couple times in this conversation, the idea of fire keeping or mm-hmm. tending 
a fire in a similar way, a physical fire, you know, like a fireplace, tending a fire, in a similar way that we would tend to our hearts. So I wonder if you can talk about that as an idea. I mean, many people, I think, I don't even know, have much experience tending an actual physical fire. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. No, and that's, you know, that's the thing that originally the book wasn't called Tending the Heart Fire, it was just Tending the Sacred Fire, because I, I was just astounded by some of the statistics of how just in one generation or two generations, um, you know, how much being disconnected from a living flame, in other words, an electrical switch, you know, the the United States in the early 20s was there was only 15% electricity and it was only until 1970 that we had electricity everywhere. And so I think that is, is a real metaphor for you know how it's how the living flame which our ancestors tended in an unbroken flow we know for at least 800,000 years in the carbon dating and most likely as long as 2 million years and so we can't just turn on an electric switch and revert to <laughs> Another kind of consciousness that what happens to people when they get around, even if it's just a campfire or fireplace, is they go into natural meditation. It's like seeing, you know, I go into the book about the primordial fire that we've come from. So the metaphor of fire keeping is still very core, like in yogic practice. The fire altar is simple. Every, you know, traditional household Brahmin or Tantric has uh, a simple. Agnihotra, a little copper kund or built into the earth, and at sunrise and sunset, the fire is lit, and offerings are connecting the fire to you know the rhythm of the year, and so that's also internalized in the body as this inner fire that is the fire altar of our heart, which represents at the deepest level our connection to the source, and then on a practical level, kind of. Just like when we tend to fire, um, you know, the fire goes out <laughs> if we don't pay attention. And also sometimes I know, if, you know, I'm also, you know, I've grown up in urban areas. I, I can build an okay fire, but I've definitely put too much, you know, fuel on a fire starting it and not the kind of simple traditional method, you know, using some, I think it even at Estes Park they give you some, fuel that you're supposed to put on and you can put too much you know and I think that's the central metaphor is and this is this fire keeping from Ayurveda understanding is we we can easily put ourselves out of balance by either excessive fire or a dim fire and the third one is called the wavering fire and the balanced fire is called sama agni and so it's a, a kind of a metaphor that's not just like our soul relationship with the core, but it's also about caring for our vital energy and how this is linked to the seasons and flow. Now, tell me what it might mean to have excessive fire in the heart, because I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm opening my heart more and more, and I'm you know finding the places that are cold and shut down. I guess I'm, I'm what could be excessive? Don't I want it to burn as brightly as possible? Right. Um, well, the way that I've Ayurveda describes this condition called um, tikshna, which kind of gives you right there the anamanapi of it, tikshna agni. 
Uh, tikshna means sharp. And there's many kind of variations. It's not like saying the one way of describing excessive fire is how it manifests in everybody. It also has seasonal manifestations. But it's basically when you're burning your energy too fast and too furious, you know. Um, so it's um, excessive doing. It's um, when we talk about the the heart fire, it's feeling that then gets into reactionary, um, reactionary kind of feedback, a rage, agitation, irritation. So these extremes are, you know, of course it's not to, what you're describing as sama agni. You know, yes, this, you know, radiance. There's no end to this radiance. This is this is the the heart of the saints. This is the heart of our grandmothers. You know, this is this amazing heart field that in, you can feel in the presence of of some extraordinary beings, like I say, that are just right there sometimes on the the street corner or in our very homes. But I think a lot of Westerners can identify with excessive fire. It's one of the things that we go into in the book. Um, and then, of course, dim fire is uh, depression, you know, re- apathy, uh, feeling disconnected, feeling shut down, you know, losing your inspiration. Um, it's you know, there's so much that can be said about those two extremes. But excessive fire is, is generally like in Ayurveda would describe as a pitta imbalance. Yeah. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. Now, for people who don't have access, let's say, to a fireplace in their home, and perhaps they mm-hmm. live in a part of the world where it's you know either banned for safety reasons or other reasons, we can't just go start a fire, you actually right. offer in the book this idea of an all-night candle vigil as yes. a, a practice. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit, whether it's an all-night candle vigil or just working with lighting a candle, how people sure. could start to work with fire in a very immediate way. Yeah. So one of the things in the book, the last part of the book, is we start from the winter solstice and we go in the journey of the year. And at each of the eight major junctures of the year um, in the solar cycle, I give these kind of fire-keeping practices. And I've been so um, inspired by Shabbat I don't have Jewish ancestors, but, like, I love Shabbat. (laughs) And, you know, that's the simple practice on Friday of kind of unplugging and really not turning on any electricity and, of course, lighting uh, seven candles and um, going into the space of natural light. Uh, So, for instance, my grandfather just passed before Samhain and Dias de los Muertos, these holy days, around October 31st that are connected with honoring the ancestors. So he passed on the 13th, and I just kept a continual votive candles. You can get them at this, any grocery store. And I just kept it continuously burning um, for those during that whole cycle. And it was really uh, such an, an anchor, uh, seeing the living flame. And another thing is, is you know, if you can't have a living flame... Um, I like using these solar lights. It's one of the projects we we uh, support in called Solar Aid. You know, be experimental. These LED little candle lights—they're absolutely not satisfying at all. But there's something about when you know 
that the light that is turning on this little lantern is from the sun, it's kind of satisfying, you know. So um, the, the suggestion is is to uh, get in the rhythm with with candlelight in an intentional way, you know. I think a lot of people love candles, uh, but there's, you know, that's the simplest version. There's these whole fire-keeping practices that one can also learn, you know. And the idea of the all-night candle vigil, what might I do if I actually wanted to stay up all night and work in some conscious way with the light of a candle? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, my favorite all-night, you know, fire ritual is Shivratri. Um, And that's a really beautiful, you know, holy day to to experience on a cross-cultural level. It's because there's so many people that participate in Shivratri. So, you know, for me, it's it's kind of like camping out around my altar, you know, and going into cycles of of japa mantra. So in yoga, we have a like in like in Christianity, you know, the rosary and you know the mala, whole mala culture that's part of many of the world's traditions. Uh, japa mala 108 is a really wonderful way to kind of cycle, um, or just offering prayer or offering prostrations on a, a kind of, you know, it, for me it should be very natural, like we come in and out, or you can offer it at sunset, um, you know, like at 9 o'clock, at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and uh, with the dawn. You know, so that's another method. So Shiva, you, you talked about how before electricity we spent quite a bit mm. more time around natural fires. And there's a fact in the book that that really struck me, which is, here it is, here's the quote, that heart disease is the number one killer in the United States, even though before 1900, very few people in the world died of heart disease. And I, I didn't know that was true, that before 1900, very few people in the world died of heart disease. I guess I thought heart disease was something that has been a, a cause of death and, you know, a significant cause of death for many, many, you know, for many, many centuries. That's what I thought. Right. Well, I've actually, um, I talked with some heart surgeons in wanting to know also about this fact. And, you know, a lot of it is attributed, of course, to diet, changes in diet, you know, just the, you know, people really did eat much more vegetarian diets, um, you know, having... Uh, rich, uh, fatty foods, uh, processed foods was just not available, obviously. <laughs> um, because, well, anyhow, um, the, the thing about the statistics, though, is that there were other uh, factors that were shortening people's life. You can imagine even in this, the Industrial Revolution, just the amount of, of lung disease and different things that would cause people to die earlier, but the main thing that it's attributed to is stress, diet, and changes. You know, the other statistic that blew my mind was this, that at the turn of the century, we just spent most of our waking hours outside, you know. Obviously, there were some shifts in the season, but we spent 90% of our waking hours outside, and of course, through industrialization, it was the beginning that I, I still see myself. It's like, oh my gosh, you know. 
I am spending most of my day inside. Like, how can I, um, how can I participate? You know, so I, when I'm at home, I really try and have this indoor-outdoor kind of lifestyle, even while working, because I just feel the fresh prana um, is so important. So talk about that some, because I'm sure many listeners are relating when you're talking about spending most of their time inside. Maybe it's, you know, commuting inside a vehicle and then being inside an office building and then being in a home, particularly if you live in a cold climate. I mean, it's cold. You're Mm going to be inside. So how do people live more indoor-outdoor lives? Yeah, I I think it, for me, is really seizing the opportunities we have for fresh prana, you know. Um, And like, for instance, we just, it was middle of November, it wasn't, um, I wouldn't call it warm, I wouldn't call it cold, it's like 60 degrees, 63 degrees. And we had a sunset party for my partner and we just had only candlelight, we unplugged everything. And it was just so beautiful that we just kept getting more and more blankets for our friends and family. And it, 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 it's just the fresh air, like making a commitment if you have you know, lunch hour, even if it's, if it's cold outside, of getting outside, <laughs> you know, getting outside, literally exposing ourselves to uh, the natural light. You know, this is part of, we know, I know the winter months are coming, but... Um, I just know for myself in following the seasons that there's a, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to, to fresh prana. Now, in the book, Tending the Heart Fire, you talk quite a lot about various ways that people can connect to the natural rhythms of the earth. In one of the sections of the book, you talk about connecting to the moon and to the phases Mm. of the moon. So I wonder if you could talk Mm -hmm. about that, because that's something I think that a lot of people do relate to, no matter where they Uh, live. There's a sense of seeing the moon when it's full or when it's waxing or waning. What are your suggestions for how people can connect to the phases of the moon? Right. Well, um, one of the things since I'm involved in the yoga community is trying to educate people to how connected people are to the phases of the moon as a way of thinking their own body energy in India. Um, the phases of the moon, the daily phases of the moon, are called titis, T-I-T-H-I, titis. And um, each phase of the moon, from Amavasya, the new moon, to the full moon, Purnima, is connected to a different aspect of Shakti, a different aspect of the goddess. And so most people know what titi it is, and they actually just usually count it by, by the day. Like, oh, it's tuturti. Um, Oh, it's ashtami. Um, and a lot of festivals even happen on certain titis. And a lot of times, like if we're in certain urban environments, like when I'm in Manhattan, it's not like you're guaranteed to look up and uh, see the moon, actually. you know. And so... Um, just in asking people, you know, you live in an extraordinary place of Boulder, which is nature-dominated, but a lot of people don't know what phase the moon is in. And to me, the main resource that we're missing out on is that we are no different than the tides in the plant world. Um, in Ayurveda, the, the moonlight is very important for regulating the nourishing aspect of fire-keeping. And this is this 
metaphor of the ojas, the ghee, this luster that's offered to the fire and um, nourishes the fire. So this is a kind of a mixed metaphor, but the simplest thing is just to every night try and see the moon. It sounds so simple. Um, and I give some mantras that are connected with each phase of the moon or just Om Chandraye Namaha or just in your own language. And literally, it's so old. Uh, our ancestors did it. It's just, you just take a moon bath for even just a few breaths. And it's it's really made a difference for me. Um, I come from a naturally kind of uh, pitta, like intense athlete, you know, ashtanga for 10 years. Like, it, it sounds so simple. It sounds so poetic. But if you really lived in whole moon cycle, new moon to full moon, full moon to new moon, with this simple practice, um, you can be aware of when the moonrise time is. Um it's a way of calling into your whole being. There's a whole meditation that we have on circulating the the inner cycles of the moon that's based upon the earliest tantric meditations um, of the Uchara practice, which is all about inhaling the sun and the moon, you know. And so you can do that simple practice, drawing down the moon into your heart, and it's, it really invites regeneration into your soul and to be comfortable with waxing and waning comfortable with waxing and waning I pretty much do try and syncopate my whole life to this waxing and waning it's so practical what does that mean that you're syncopating your life um, to like the on a planning level yeah like actually we did this calendar right um, where we, we had the kind of sun and moon times and this whole cycle is um, when I'm teaching I always plan uh teachings that are more dynamic in the waxing moon cycle. Or if I'm in a creative project, um, I will try and, in the two weeks of the waxing cycle, move things that are more outward nature towards fruition. And once, like now we're just on that cycle, now we're in just a couple of days into the waning cycle, I, I really try and save everything <laughs> that... Um, is kind of like taking care of the nest for that waning cycle. Now, I can imagine someone saying, you know, look, that sounds great, but it's just not really practical. Right, exactly. It's not really practical in my life. You know, if I get an invitation to do whatever, I'm not going to, like, check the, the moon cycle. So right, what, sure. What do, you, what do you think about that concern? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also just, you know, things fall where they fall. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about, like, a freaky um, adding one more thing that we're hypersensitive to. I just find it incredibly practical. Because I'm actually, whatever is in my control to plan and do, I'm, it's like very much like being a sailor. I'm, I'm tacking with the natural energy that's, that's flowing. It, it, to me, it makes no sense to go against this unless I have to. And there's plenty of times I have to. And then when I have to, I'm also doing certain practices that kind of naturally balance that. So, for instance, let's be really practical and raw. Uh, in the book, I have a whole section for women about being able to work with their cycle um, in this kind of creative flow of outward and inward. And basically that I think it's it's hard for women leaders because sometimes we're called to be in this outward flow when biologically or physiologically we may have a more inward flow. 
So all that, if that if I'm in that circumstance, whether it's because I'm on my moon cycle or just because of the way planning things work, I'm more careful to not make my fire excessive. I I don't go for an intense uh, cycle. I don't try and do 20 things. I, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm careful to not um, stress my system, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to ask you about really what I would say in many ways is a central premise in tending the heart fire that underlies a lot of this sinking ourselves, sinking our bodies with mm-hmm. the natural world, which is this that our bodies are microcosms of the universe. This is one of the statements that's made right at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you mean that literally, that our bodies are microcosms of the universe, or if you mean that more poetically. Um, You know, one of my favorite shows is uh, Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman, and it's all about... (laughs) Uh, these like macro, macro, macro cycles the, of you know the black holes and the multiple timescapes that we live in. You know things that that seem um, you know how could this be linked? How is it that when all of the world's traditions have this kind of conception of the microcosm and the macrocosm, but then there'll be these kind of scientific facts of that. You know, our bodies are literally comprised of only of the elements that were created from this beginning of this primordial fire. So literally everything we're made of uh, comes from uh, the universal Big Bang. Um, Our body is completely synced to the sun and the moon. Um, Just the fact, the simplest thing is that we go to sleep eventually. I mean, some people have sleep disorders. I mean, we, we follow, particularly when you, we don't turn on the lights and we're kind of in a natural rhythm, we, we follow, our whole system gets synced uh, to the sun and the moon. And so the, the simplest way is that um, we're oscillating beings, we're rhythmic beings, our breath, our heartbeat. There's nothing in this universe that is not in this pulsing uh, rhythm, and so it's, it's a matter of kind of investigating the part of our mind that thinks this is pure poetry, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to, I have to investigate that with science because I have that part of my mind too. You know, I, I have a poetic nature, but um, it's really through the science that I've relaxed into the, the yoga. Usually describes things in, in poetic language because that's how the the, the cells seem to respond, you know. Um, direct technical language sometimes doesn't get to this. I already mentioned it, what the soft animal of the body seems to open to. You know, So that to me is the, the usefulness of this poetry is the somatic response that it often, you know, so for me it causes me to investigate the state of disconnection that's so easy to have. You know, mm-hmm. and like, well, let me really investigate this. Is this true? So, so in terms of linking up with the sun, you know, you mentioned going to sleep mm-hmm. at night. I'm curious to know through the course of the day, from waking up until we go to bed at night, 
what you think mm. are the sort of key sync-up possibilities mm-hmm. that people have in a 24-hour cycle, the ones that really would be the most transformative if people paid attention to them in terms of how they're inside themselves, their bodies, their consciousness, and what's happening in the 24 hours with the sun rising and setting. Right. So, yeah, that's the one of the major parts of the book, actually, is is giving people, um, starting with the cycle of the day, an understanding of, of living vinyasa, which means like living in this sequence of flow, and that some of the simplest ways to do this are what Ayurveda calls the Dinacharya and Ratricharya practices. Dina meaning day, Ratri meaning night. And also this thing about sandhyas. Sandhyas means these sacred junctures. So for me, the simplest thing is to always know kind of the sunrise-sunset points, or at least one of them a day. Sometimes if I need to rest, I don't, you know, I rest, uh, I, I'll, I'll sleep in past the sunrise point, but when I'm really in my flow, I try and um, start this ritual process of of waking up consciously, doing yoga in the bed, which is this simple kind of way of oscillating the body, um, connecting to your breath instead of just sleeping out of the bed, which I did most of my early adulthood life the alarm would go off, I would leap out of bed and I'd start going. <laughs> so it's this kind of a way of bringing yoga. Uh, it's an Ayurvedic practice, it's actually called, of, of letting the first breath of your day really set the tone and even using that time to kind of visualize the flow of the day. And if possible, when you are near the sunrise or sunset time, to not do any kind of administrative, practical things, even if we're talking for five minutes, or even best an hour or an hour and a half around that time. The whole hour and a half around sunrise and sunset is considered to be a a really heightened time. of It's called a sandhya. And the other simple thing is, um, you know, I'm a big, you know, fan of, of... oils and oiling your body. It sounds so uh, like, wait, I don't have time. But if you even just for five minutes oil your body according to the seasons, and this is within our our book, particularly now going into fall and winter, that to me is the other essential Hmm. rhythm practice because it slows you down. It shows you this moment where we would sacrifice what five minutes is more important than um, giving your entire body the sense of connectedness and also intelligence. You know, if you have anything going on in your body, the, the massage with the oils, it's done in a circular manner along your joints, is really this kind of communication of, of flow and, and vitality, intelligence. And then the other simple thing is, of course, to honor that in the evening time. We could talk briefly about the middle point, but to have this kind of reflection of day and night, simple ritual practices. Um, and so in the evening, there is, you know, according to whatever is your is your flow, you know, when I was writing the book, sometimes I was up, you know, writing at night, but it was for me very important to create this ritual transition 
Deepak Chopra has been so wonderful in, you know, putting Ayurveda out to, you know, people from all backgrounds and just the importance of the simplest thing is to have something warm, um, warm almond milk at night, put some oils on your lower body, which is um, grounding. And, you know, we have some practices like Chandra Namaskar, some deeper practices that people can do, but the, the simplest thing is not letting the sunrise and sunset time be sacrificed, you know? You know, as you're talking, Shiva, you know what I'm flashing on, and I, I wonder if there are people out there that might be having this experience. I know I am, which is just mm. a sense of sadness, I guess you could say, or a sense mm. of, wow, my life and the lives of so many people I know seem so far away from what you're mm. describing. You know, if you mm. if you think of people commuting many people an hour each mm-hmm. each way to work and then working, who knows, 50, 60 hours a week, something like that, not yeah. connecting in the ways that you're describing to the outer world, let alone to their bodies with oils and things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like our culture as a whole is not going in the direction you're describing here. And that many people may feel like, wow, this is a really huge leap from where I am. And yet I mm. I feel the intelligence and mm. the depth of it and how it would be so great. But I feel there's a big bridge to cross to get to where Shiva's talking about. You know, I think it's it's really about, because this happens to me too, you know, I'm, I have to be I have to be driving and it's sunset time. Um is okay. I'll put some music on. I'll play some chanting music, or I'll I'll sing myself, or I can even be an amazing U um, two song. I mean, it doesn't have to be the in any you know particular form of what is a holy to you. But if you can, okay, pull over as you see the sun setting. Pull over, or you're driving, you see the sun. Um, acknowledge that. This, you know, the the main thing in the book, I I created this uh, visual of the fire of the sun in the center, and our awareness that we are traveling through the universe. Um, I think that that we're it's something like two million eight hundred and something thousand miles an hour. If you take the all of the oscillations, the spinning Earth, the spinning of our solar system, the spinning of the galaxy, but just for us to kind of wake up at how extraordinary it is to be on Spaceship Earth. That that's not some kind of cosmic woo-woo. That's that, that kind of cut through that I think we absolutely need in the United States. Like we're, you know, it, for me, valuing our energy and being creative with how we do it is completely linked to the incredible waking up that we all have to do for our energy future, you know, our shared energy future. So I, I think this is being valuing and creative, being creative, you know, and also just the practicality. Once you start to give yourself these times, like in your relationships, once you start to see that while we do have some choices, um, if we're not just kind of steamrolling over the rhythm of our life and kind of becoming the thing that I really am constantly amazed at is just the 24-7 that is now encroached on everything, you know. 
And um, I want to be fully engaged in the world. Um, I love all the movers and shakers in the world. We need, we need these methods of communication, but we cannot be run by them. You know? And to me, this is the, this kind of like taking back your rhythm, taking back your rhythm, you know? your own personal Shabbat every day. <laughs> you know? And that's the power of meditation practices, um, yoga practices, movement practices is you know we have to we, we come back we come back into this in, in, extraordinary you know um refuge that our energetic system when it's when it's flowing is for us you know when it's not flowing and we just keep ignoring the the tending of this fire it it becomes hellish to live in your body you know Shiva, I want to congratulate you on the book that you wrote, Tending the Heart Fire, Living in Flow with the Pulse of Life. It is filled with so many practices, exercises, tables, mantras, mudras, suggested puja, rituals of all kinds, Ayurvedic advice. It's really a comprehensive and beautiful reference book for people. And I know you put a lot of energy and time into the book. And at the same time, it sounds like we're able to walk your talk to at least some degree, and that's incredible. So I want to congratulate yeah, you. I that. mean, honestly, because um, it, just, it just is the most satisfying, you know, Tammy? You know what I mean? It's like uh, I have this picture of myself. I call as a terrorist. I look like a terrorist. When I was 17, I was, like, headed to to do volunteer work in Africa and like you can see like the light of my eyes not smiling <laughs> um I'm in this really hardened place you know and I I've, I I I know that place I've I this is the uh, uh, initiations uh through the fire that we all go through and the book had its you know moments like that too but I really, I had to walk my talk, you know. Um, my my heart became my refuge, you know, in many, many ways, but, you know, before the book. But um, I, it's really, I really sincerely um, hope that this book would get in the hands of anybody who needs it, you know. Um, anybody who needs to remember this extraordinary, often untapped, living uh, energy of our heart wisdom, our heart fire. Um, there's so many amazing poems and, you know, quotes from extraordinary masters in the book. Let's end with one, Shiva. Let's, let's end with a, a quote or a poem that you really love. Well, this is, of course... Um, that great, passionate firekeeper, Navlana Rumi. Um, but there's also many, many uh, poems by Christian mystics and some extraordinary poems by uh, the sages from Shaiva Tantra. But this is the one that opens the book. And it says, In our heart there burns a fire. In our hearts there burn a fire that burns all veils to their root and foundation. In our hearts there burns a fire that burns all veils to their root and foundation. 
when the veils have been burned away, then the heart will understand completely. And ancient love will unfold ever fresh forms in the heart of the spirit, in the core of the heart. For me, it, it feels like the veil he's talking about is really this separation that I I lived from for such a long time. Um, separation of my intellect and my heart wisdom. That disconnection from nature. Uh, it can be anything that uh, you know creates this dissonance inside us. And so it's my prayer that that we individually and collectively uh, re-embody our energetic heart. This is my dedication. I've been speaking with Shiva Ray. She has created a new book called Tending the Heart Fire, Living in Flow with the Pulse of Life. Which sounds true, Shiva has also published a yoga DVD, a best-selling yoga DVD called Yoga Shakti. She's also created several popular music for flow yoga CDs, an album called Jala, another album called Yoga Rhythms, and another Nataraja, and yet another called Yoga Soul. Shiva, it's always so fabulous to talk with you. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations on Tending the Heart Fire and its release. Well, I think you have an amazing heart field, Tammy. You, you are an extraordinary mover and shaker, and I'm so honored to be part of Sounds True. Our engineer today is Aaron Arnold. Our series editor is Jeff Mack. And the music that you're hearing in the background here is by Tom Coletti from the album Yoga is Union. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.